0: Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the online audience who are um, joining us from all over the world. Um, It's lovely to see you all here on this beautiful morning. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking Arts Council England for their support, um, which has been absolutely vital to us in these recent years, and I'd also like to to thank our sponsor, B R M, for his support, which is really gratefully received. I'm going to do um, a brief introduction to all four poets at once, and then I'm going to hand over um, to the poets for this event. I'm keeping my introduction particularly brief because I know how rich and full this hour is going to be, and I don't want to waste a minute of it. So um, I'll begin by introducing uh, Greta Stoddard, whose fourth collection, Fool, is coming soon from Bloodaxe. Bloodaxe also published her third collection, Alive, Alive-O. Her half-hour radio drama, Who's There?, was nominated for a Ted Hughes Award. Elaine Beckett is a poet and musician who also writes screenplays. She won a Faber New Poet Award with her pamphlet, Faber New Poets 13. Her first collection is published by Verve and is called ...sea creature regrows entire body. Jill Barr has had poems published in various magazines... ...including two poems recently... ...in an online poetry journal, Bad Lilies... ...which is an excellent um, journal. If you don't know know it, look, look for it. And she's working towards her first collection. And Helen Evans' poem Night Crossing... ...came third in the Manchester Cathedral Prize... And her work has appeared in various magazines, including the Rialto and the North. Her debut pamphlet, Only by Flying, was published by Happenstance Press. So please give a very warm Ledbury welcome to our poets.
1: Perhaps, like me, you're not much good at them. And always leave too soon, or stay too long, lingering by the exit to the room, knowing all the time you don't belong. Perhaps, like me, your history's a mess of promising beginnings that just ended, love affairs or marriages once blessed, ruptured beyond hope of being mended. Perhaps, even at deathbeds, you're like me, overwhelmed and saying the wrong thing, words which echo through eternity, which make one finite end feel never-ending, which stop me seeing what I need to see, that every ending is a new beginning.
2: My mother's waters broke during an episode of Bonanza on the 10th of April 1964, and I was born a few hours later. I don't remember it. It's not a beginning that I know. However, there were witnesses, and people there said it happened. When I die, even if I can anticipate it in some way, I won't know the instant of my own passing, But out of shared stories, inherited experiences, I accept the fact of my birth and death. The unknown hardens into certainty, becomes the story of myself. George Eliot refers to this as the make-believe of a beginning, to which I would add the make-believe of an ending. You could argue that endings are artificial learned. In our event today, we're going to explore how poems end. We're going to look at the craft and the content. We're going to look at the form and the theme. And indeed, it has been a somewhat momentous week for endings, with so many careers coming to an end. And speaking of careers, I've recently retired from teaching And I'd like to share this with you, a teacher's prayer. They have told us to future-proof all documents, a sensible directive, I suppose, to save on time, labor, keep the academy's profile up to date. They also require us to future-proof results so that with the accuracy of an accountant and the hubris of a fortune teller, I must predict next year's results and those for the summer after that. How can I know when we are not there? The future is an illusion, a distortion of our instinct to anticipate the winter's lack or the scorch of summer. I wish I could be proofed against the future, for I have already accrued eons of anxiety Fear further failings and future reckonings. Oh, save me from what is to come. Lead me not into tomorrows. Deliver me from the still to be. For I was taught, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So be it. And let me be here now.
3: Lead me not into tomorrow's, deliver me from the still to thee, praise the teacher. Let me be here now. An ending that counteracts our expectations. We don't receive forever and ever, amen. Instead, we are asked to consider the now. Which leaves me thinking that however many techniques we Touch upon this morning, there's something often very mysterious about the way in which a poem ends. Unless we make use of rigorous poetic forms, of which a little later. But occasionally, endings seem to arrive in the now of creating the poem, fully formed, determined to keep their place. Thursday. When the dusk comes in as quiet as this, as low as this, as dense as this, like your whole world has gone back to where it began, and you wonder how you got into this mess, the kind of mess you cannot see an end to, as if it may already have ended very badly, and all you can hear is the sound of your own name, spoken deep inside your own head it is probably best to step back from whatever kind of brink you imagine you have reached and think about something else something small and practical like boiling an egg
4: Robert Lowell, the American poet, when presented with a 17 line poem by a student, suggested they cut the first 16 lines. There, he says, handing back the poem. Now you have the beginning of a great poem. I often wonder what that line was. It must have felt like it was full of potential. I love that feeling of possibility when I'm writing. I once wrote a poem where a sheep's crusty underwool is home to a green bottle settling down to lay her 250 possibilities. Sometimes an ending can take us to a place we hardly think possible, like the boiling of an egg can the poem really end like that? How is that such a perfect but wholly unexpected ending? I feel a similar sense of surprise, shock even, when I come to the end of this poem by James Wright. Lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. Over my head I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right in a field of sunlight between two pines The droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life.
1: I have wasted my life. We've certainly travelled a long way in that poem from the bronze butterfly in the shade that began it and not by an obvious straight road either. But what about those poems that stay resolutely where they began? Those poems that seem to circle around the same stuck place, like this next poem. Incidentally, it was inspired by a poem called Stand in the Light by the Scottish poet Elizabeth Rimmer, so the end of her poem was the beginning of mine. It's called And Sit With The Dark. And sit with the dark when it comes Smell the wax and the wick Watch its small orange tip glow brighter Then fade into black See the ghost of its flame on your eyelids Be led by the flow of your breath Feel the pillow behind and the hard bed beneath you Let them support you. Be still. And sit with the dark and observe those shapes you don't see in the light. Untangle yourself from your mind and instead inhabit your gut and your heart. Listen and hear the unwanted sound of a late lorry rumbling past. Open yourself to a sense of the space that's holding you quietly here. Attend to the silence. Be still. And sit with the dark and absorb the force of the longing for light. Don't reach for a match or a switch or a gun. Darkness will never extinguish the light. This planet Rotates, daylight will come. So sit with the darkness, be still.
4: With that poem of Helen's, we feel like we keep returning to the same place, but we're also making a very subtle kind of progress. We're undoubtedly moving forward. So even if poems have a circular feel, they always develop and will, of course, eventually land. Robert Frost talks about this arc in a poem being one that moves from delight to wisdom Another way of saying this might be that we move from the concrete to the abstract. So you could begin your poem with something the reader can picture, something you share, something familiar, maybe, something small, maybe. Mark this flea and mark in this, begins John Donne, And what starts out as a seduction poem ends up being a matter of life and death. As this flees death, took life from thee. The title, which is also the first line of the next poem I'm going to read, came to me quickly, completely, and possessing, as some first lines do, a kind of inevitability. You're going to have to write the rest of this poem. And I did. Well, I tried to write the rest of the poem, and it wouldn't come. I tried, in fact, over a number of years until I kind of gave up on it, put it to one side, forgot about it, really. And then one day, the rest of the poem came to me as quickly, as inevitably, as that first line had. So sometimes it's just time um, I have no idea why, but we just have to wait. My life came up to me and said, I want to ask you about courage. It wasn't a good time. I was kneeling at the iris bed. I'd been waiting weeks to do this, to not think about anything but the irises and my need to free them of all the nettles and wild grasses my need to cut a border look out the window and feel a deep satisfaction at the sight of the dark dug over soil broken now and open ready for the rain to enter for the green sheaths to push up unfurl their purple flags to the air. Do you think you have more because of the years, or less? And I looked at my life as I've always done, askance, sceptical, and said, I'm not sure I ever had it. I'm not sure you asked for it. Things happened that made me sad as the next person, but my choices were clear to me and I was always able to make them. Do you know how lucky you are? My life said, placing a hand on my shoulder as I looked down and scraped my trowel with a stick. I have no idea why the tears came. I didn't know who to thank or if even thanks were due. Surely not to my life who I could see now was simply passing by.
3: So with that universally Scary thought, the poem ends, the poet notices that her life is simply passing her by. And the line curves us right back up to the opening lines of this poem. My life came up to me and said, I want to ask you about courage. The first of three questions that the personified life of the poet asks the poet the power of three. No answers given to that question. So the personified life of the poet continues, poses its second, and that one is answered. Then comes the third. Do you know how lucky you are? Asks the poet's life. By now there's a strong expectation that this third question will be answered and the answer will somehow explain, open out the poem and bring it to its close. But no, the poem changed tack. It ditched the poetic device of the question and answer. Instead, we get a very quiet statement. I have no idea why the tears came. Like one of Schumann's interrupted cadences, you think you're approaching the end, but the poem changes color, seeks out more space to explore its subtle meaning. So as with sonata form, with its exposition, development and recapitulation, the power of three can help power a poem, keep it alive, set up attention and deliver its ending. Which brings us to well-known poetic forms that make strict use of threes like the villanelle, for example in which five tercets are followed by a quatrain in which the first and third lines reappear as the final two lines of the poem. So in choosing your first and third lines, you set up your ready-made ending. Falling. If I were to tell you I know very little about myself, you might turn away. I'd have to move the conversation on to something less personal. Because if I were to tell you I met my mother for just one afternoon, I'd maybe lose confidence. You might turn away, see me differently. And that would be a shame. If I were to tell you that shame is exactly what I felt that day, you might think me too complex, too fragile. You might turn away. You don't need to know everything all at once, though I'm bursting to tell you. If I were to tell you, would you turn away?
2: That repeated third line shifts subtly into the most poignant of questions. The speaker is held in suspense, in hope or fear, awaiting an answer. The reader, too, is left holding the question, its immense challenge and responsibility. I'm struck by the number of poems that reside in what Helen has referred to as that same stuck place, what we might call the frustration stage of a a much greater narrative, poems written out of a tension that cannot resolve. But I'm pleased to say there are times when the question is answered, when the obstacle is overcome, when the resistance is removed, and we glimpse for a moment, because a happy ending is only a pause, we glimpse a happy ending. Talking to each other. You reach up in the early dawn to open the window above our bed. Your bowed belly is warm to my drawn hand. the night's heat still in you, and I imagine journeys, conjure the sultana and her lover, attuned to bird-song under a cypress tree in a garden teeming with jasmine, lily, rose, profuse with pomegranates, figs, and plump strawberries picked from plants that sent out runners, set down roots, grew out of wild woodland into gardens, escaped again, climbed into mason's mines, crept along the margins of manuscripts, onto the corners of handkerchiefs, when you say, listen, the doves are talking to each other.
1: I'm going to go off script now to say one of the great pleasures and privileges of preparing this reading has been hearing amazing poems like this over and over again. And I love the way this particular poem journeys towards its uh, its pause of a happy ending, um, like that strawberry runner growing through mines, through stone, through embroidery, through manuscript. But how do we know as writers... When we have reached the ending, I'm not talking about the mystery that Elaine alluded to, uh, but just that practical decision which is the last line. And anyone who's ever attended a poetry workshop will know um, what discussion that can elicit. And sometimes, even as the poet, we simply don't. While we were planning this event, I got an acceptance email from an editor with this P.S. P.S. I'm not sure if the last line needs the word autumn in it. I did wonder if the last line was in fact the beginning line for another poem and whether the poem might be stronger ending on walked out. What do you think? Well, I thought he was right but I didn't think that walked out was quite right either so I suggested a third ending to him and because I trusted his judgement and I once was an editor so I know how busy editors are I said no need to reply and then I realised I'd condemned myself to waiting until the magazine came out before I knew how my own poem ended <laughs> um, Just a little word of warning. The story of how this poem got its ending is funny. The poem itself is not. As I walked away after the full body massage in that isolated town, something in me said, I wouldn't go to him again even though nothing much had happened. Just a suspicion of disquiet, an instinctive freeze when his fingers rubbed almost too near, then slid back. But years later, when the letter arrived from that distant police force, I knew what it was about Even before I rang the sergeant Who had the grim job of talking to all of us She told me that he had labelled the photos And the videos with our full names And I was one of the luckier ones None of me Or none they could find. Did I want to complain? Could I be a witness? I couldn't help. All I remember is how I felt as I walked away.
2: As Helen's um, unsettling poem shows, um, the most effective way of of ending a poem can be difficult to settle on, a matter of opinion even, and so we thought we'd like to explore this area um, a little more, and we hope that you'll be happy to participate in in what we do. We're going to try to show our process of reaching an ending in action, um, and you're going to get to be the the editor um, if you're happy to participate. So, how are we going to do it? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a handout which um, I think you will have received when uh, when you came in, um, and uh, if you turn to the side that's that's got what she called the blood jet uh, as the as the title, and you'll see it contains four poems, or rather, it contains one poem with um, with four endings. Now, I know some of you were here very early, uh, and you probably had a chance to read those uh, read those through. But um, we'll give everybody um, a minute to, to, to look at those um, in, in just a, a moment or two. So just to explain um, what, we're, what we're interested in, um, we, we were given the opening of a poem. So we were given the opening lines and we were invited to finish it as we wished Now I should say that we had a very tight deadline and we haven't altered the endings um, since we um, first shared them with uh, with each other. So could I invite you just to take uh, a minute or two to read the four endings to this poem. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, you've probably just got the beginnings of a, of a sense of those, those endings, but to help you further, what we'd like to do is now to, to read them um, aloud, and then after that, we're going to invite you to be the editor and to choose one of the four endings um, that seems to work, to work best for you. Okay? So, poem A.
3: The Cabinet of Love has only two doors, in and out. There are four rooms. In the first, screw top bottles and foil strips hold brilliantly colored answers. The second holds something French to do with herbs and truffle. The third has the memory of childhood with its puddle of blamange. The fourth is full of tiny drawers holding the crumbs of past arguments that swagger and compete and are known to contain enormous quantities of energy so that anyone finding themselves in that room has a choice.
2: Oh, that's me. Okay. Um, the cabinet of love has only two doors, in and out, There are four rooms. In the first, screw-top bottles and foil strips hold brilliantly coloured answers. The second holds something French to do with herbs and truffle. The third has the memory of childhood, a broken tooth inside a square of gauze. The fourth contains a theatre of cruelties, a wound, a spurt, a salve, a scorpion, un jet de sang, A nurse.
4: The cabinet of love has only two doors, in and out. There are four rooms. In the first, screw-top bottles and foil strips hold brilliantly colored answers. The second holds something French to do with herbs and truffle. The third has the memory of childhood. And here, last of all, like mica, like mercury, lies the present. It is a muscle, it is meat.
1: The cabinet of love has only two doors, in and out. There are four rooms. In the first, screw-top bottles and foil strips hold brilliantly coloured answers. The second holds something French to do with herbs and truffle. The third has the memory of childhood. Yes, that memory. And the fourth... Well, who knows what it holds? Certainly not you, who can only hang around on the threshold, wondering if it's safe to go in.
2: Thank you. And now the editorial choice. Um, So why don't you take 30 seconds and just be clear in your mind which uh, which one you, you prefer. If you want to chat with the person beside you to clarify your point of view, feel free. So 30 seconds. Okay, here we go. Um, so, I wonder if I can ask you just to put your hand in the air for the the uh, poem that you prefer the ending of, your editorial choice. So, poem A. Could you put your hand up, please? One, two, three, four, five. Thank you. Poem B. One, two, three, four. Poem C. One, two, three, four. And poem D, ooh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, well, okay, poem D. So how
1: many was that? Ah, that must yeah, have been was, about... <laughs>
2: that was, um, yeah, 10, what, 11, 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, Helen, put you on the spot then, can you tell us something about how you landed at your ending?
1: Well, I can, but it's a little bit embarrassing, really, um, because, I mean, what we'll admit to you later is that the original poet who wrote the original poem, is also in this lineup. Um, <laughs> I, for me, it's, uh, I, I think this task, it's a lot easier to write endings to another person's poem than it is to your own, by the way. So I wrote this very quickly. Yeah. And I think what I've done is gone back to familiar kind of tropes if you like so the unknowingness the procrastinating at the threshold of the room um the direct address to the audience the very simple language all those are kind of quite typically hellenish things and it's quite a place of vulnerability for me so i'm wondering if people liked it because it also kind of reflects a place of vulnerability for for them right um i don't know what do you make of it
3: yeah well i think you're the are you Yes, you do have the fourth, don't you? Yes, yes. You do. And then you really go into, in, into your own style there, don't you? Yes.
0: Um,
1: and, and, yeah, I mean, it just works perfectly. I mean, we've both gone for the, there are four rooms, so we'll fill the fourth. I mean, yeah, I we'll love the crumbs the of energy in yours. That felt so yeah. so good. Yeah, and,
3: the, of course, the one that doesn't have a fourth the fourth room mm. is the one yeah. you read, Greta.
1: Yes. That's can
4: you
3: tell us a bit more about
4: that? Well, I can. I can tell you that um, that this is the original poem. So I, I had... This. It's not mine. It's written by um, Maura Dooley from her wonderful uh, 2008 collection, Life Underwater. And she kindly gave us permission to play around with her poem. So I got this poem um, from her book and gave seven lines to, to my friends here and, and got them to to come up with their versions. And I was really um, interested in, in when I read all the others and then read more as she was the only one who resisted that fourth chamber. So she mm. defied the expectation. We talked a little bit earlier about poems that give you that sense of surprise or, um, you know, that unpredictable swerve at the end. And I think um, I, I really like that about her, this particular ending. But also, if you look at the language there, she really... Um, um cranks up the alliteration and the sound, the mica, the mercury, muscle meat. You could say those four M's are a bit like the four rooms of the heart. Anyway, I, I, I emailed Moore and I said, just how can you just tell us a little bit about your poem and how you, you 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 got to that um ending? And she was delighted to reply and she said, actually this poem is the third in a group of four. So it's like <laughs> a, it's its own chamber, if you like. And um she said that she wanted to think about the The word heart and what it meant to her. Her husband had been recently diagnosed with a heart condition. So she was absorbing that. And at the same time, her daughter was cutting open a heart in a biology lesson. And then she remembered a time in France when she was not forced, but invited to eat a heart. And then being brought up a Catholic, she remembers the sacred heart uh, on the wall, when the picture of the sacred heart op- opened up, if you like. So she had all these memories of heart, um, but for her the most pressing um, image and feeling, if you like, was, was to do with her husband and his heart mm-hmm. in the present moment. And so there's all that medicinal and, and slightly sort of... Um, Deadly or scary thing happening at the end for her, which brings it back to this Mm -hmm. meat, you know, this pulsing Mm -hmm. uh, thing at the end, and
1: and obviously her love for for the the uh, Mm -hmm. owner of that heart. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you picked up on that kind of medicinal stuff with your ending, didn't you? Yes, Jules, the nurse.
2: Yeah. Well, I think what what strikes me is 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 just the way you bring you bring yourself to the poem, and then Mm -hmm. we we all shot off in these different directions. Um, you talked about the sort of vulnerability and you, and you talked about your the choice, mm-hmm. you know, we were left with a choice at the end of, mm-hmm. of Elaine's version um, and in, in mine um, <laughs> my my poem was very influenced um, I think probably like Greta said earlier, I, I was waiting for inspiration to to hit me and it did hit me when I came across an article in a newspaper about um, Peter Doherty the, the um, kind of drum crazed um, musician and so for me the kind of um, screw top bottles and foil strips were very much about that and his, his mm-hmm. um, rather dysfunctional relationships which is what led for me then into um, uh, something that w- was kind of a, a sort of grotesque inversion of love almost mm-hmm. is, is what, what came through for me. Mm-hmm.
3: And did you mention something about the, Cru- the theatre of cruelties being related to a- pleasure. Well
2: again it was another little detail that came into play which was a, a French play called The, the Jet of Blood um, that, that is part of the genre called The Theatre of Cruelties and that the idea of the theatre like a stage set seemed to me to fit with the formal kind of qualities of the, of the poem um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, but we, could, we can intellectualise and talk you know, <laughs> and explain <laughs> anything don't, can't we till,
4: till the cows come home really but um, and they do come home eventually. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm interested too, we're, we're all interested in the, the, the physical thing that happens at, at the end of a poem. So quite often you'll notice, as, as in the more Aduli poem, there, a kind of intensification of sound, so technique, uh, or our oral techniques um, crank up, if you like. like rhythm and rhyme and alliteration and we, we started to wonder what, you know, why is this? Is it, uh, does the, the poet instinctively want to drive a point home? Does it make the poem more memorable? So you're left with a really memorisable line um, and I think there's, it, is, it is about all those things and sound is something that we feel in the body isn't it? Like, like music um, and words tend to kind of go through here and uh, in there and sound some, somehow um, can bypass the intellect so, um, I, I, you'll remember the first poem that Jill read, The Teacher's Prayer, where she uses the Lord's Prayer um, at the end, and it begins to sound like a kind of a warped version of, of that Lord's Prayer. And she's tapping into those old familiar cadences that, that some of us um, were, were brought up um, listening to. Um, and the, the, the contemporary might be resistant to such um, musicality, maybe to such certainty, um, but sometimes it is the very sound, um, the music, the beauty, if you like, um, that can strike the true note. As in uh, this poem, Machines, by Michael Donaghy. Dearest, note how these two are alike this harpsichord Pavan by Purcell and the racer's 12 speed bike. The machinery of grace is always simple. This chrome trapezoid, one wheel connected to another of concentric gears, which Ptolemy dreamt of and Schwin perfected, is gone. The cyclist, not the cycle, steers. And in the playing, Purcell's chords are played away. So this talk, or touch, if I were there, should work its effortless gadgetry of love, like Dante's heaven, and melt into the air. If it doesn't, of course, I've fallen. So much is chance, so much agility, desire, and feverish care. As bicyclists, And harpsichordists prove who only by moving can balance. Only by balancing move.
3: beautifully rhythmic and musical ending isn't it who only by moving can balance only by balancing move you could you could write that in musical notation actually i think it's in nine eight actually um i was thinking about that and actually it reminded me that um i once played in a band called the last visible dog last visible dog Horn, piano, violin combinations have little to do with rock music. We'd never applied ourselves to rock music, only free improvisation. Only it wasn't free, because the violinist was anxious about starts and finishes. So we'd have to plan ahead, know who'd be starting each piece, how it would finish, making it hard to take risks in between, which was supposed to be anyone's guess. Though we could pretty much guess how the music would go as we each had our riffs that repeated, got vaguely disguised, then repeated, as if we were seriously into minimalism, as if minimalism could disguise chaos with which it has nothing to do. The violinist was sure this was the way to handle chaos. At least it got us out of our rooms. And in my case, on the day a silent Japanese percussionist came to play, an extraordinary lay in Notting Hill Gate, above a sweet shop in a triple aspect sunny room. So
1: So we've just heard two poems there, Machines by Donaghy and Elaine's Last Visible Dog, that use rhyme and rhythm with nuance and balance. These words, nuance and balance, were not my watchwords when I wrote this heavily end-rhymed and strongly rhythmic poem. Um, Greta, I'm sure, would describe it as cranking up the sounds Uh, And it ends with a very loud ending, which is odd because you don't have to worry about endings at all if you're the speaker of this next poem. Immortal. I'm graphite. I'm diamond. I'm limestone. I'm coal. I'm in your cremations in beads carved from shale and bronze-mounted drinking horns emptied of mead and soft woolen fabrics and heat-blackened seeds. I remember your tombs. I also remember the moment precisely when flame becomes ember, the last mourner tending the funeral pyre, the pause and the leap of the first forest fire. I'm your breath. I'm the cells of your body. I'm more. The fragment of leaf in the dinosaur's jaw, the irritant dirt and the pearl in the mollusk, the diesel particulates coloring dusk. I'm the atom before you split particles from it, dust from the tail of a visiting comet.
2: Don Patterson speaks of the big church of the poem's ending, its grandeur, its uplift, even the great chimes of the church bells. But poems can also end in quieter, flatter ways. Rather than the big church of the poem's ending, what about the small bathroom of the poem's ending? Showerhead. This evening, the shower hose lies still in meander in the bath, and the head inclines, it seems to me, with the formality of Madonna intent on child, bent in adoration, private, selfless, pure. Madonna of compassion, virgin, elusa, more commonly realized in marble than faux chrome with limescale finish in my bath. Strange in these troubled times how frequent sightings of the Holy Family are. Jesus in a pizza or a piece of ham, His face in a tree trunk outside Little today will make news at ten. Go on, Google it quick, click here for more. I could vlog my real-life encounter, make my bathroom a place of cyber pilgrimage, a holy Skype site for the faithful. I will not. Instead, I will try to know this tableau of the ordinary, acrylic bath with plug and chain draped about the taps meandering hose, shampoo with open lid, a towel of many pinks, and my pyjamas, an unexhausted heap upon the mat.
3: I've been thinking about how a really good ending creates a space after the final line, a potent creative space. So poems don't have to end with a bang. Showerhead ends in a kind of collapse. What we might call a flat ending, wonderfully descriptive of those pyjamas in exhausted heap upon the mat. And there's a line in Showerhead that I've kept coming back to. I will try to know this tableau of the ordinary. And the more I've thought about that, the more it seems to summon up what we poets try to do know something we don't yet quite know but sense we could perhaps bear to know if we could write a poem about it. There are poems whose weather fluctuates quite quickly in which there are twists and turns ending you up in a different emotional space. Sea creature regrows entire body was the headline that stopped me short. It took a day or two to get back to it, what with all the broken cups. The weather was fine. The kind of weather that makes a difference to people who prefer not to calm down, but react to whatever the next thing is that they think they ought to manage. Because you don't get to decide most things they happen through some other force, that in a moment of distraction, you yourself set in motion. The brushing of a tiny hair, the turning of the wrong key in the wrong lock, with all its transparency of knock-on effects, hours, days, even decades later. Like, why on earth did you marry the person if you didn't really like them. Of course June wasn't all like that. Some days were sublime, freshly milled pepper and salt and ice cream and everything I ever wanted for the rest of my life.
2: ever been to Swanage? No, no, no one here's ever, I'm sure someone in this room has been to Swanage. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, there's a place just beyond it called um, Durlston Park, well worth a visit, um, wonderful woodland and coastal landscape and one of its features is, is a path that marks out geological time so that every step you take represents 15 million years and you walk through the Triassic-Jurassic-Cretaceous periods. And as you get towards the end of the walk, there is a stone. And on the stone is carved the last lines of Caroline Duffy's poem, Snow, which ask, What will you do now with the gift of your left life?
4: what will you do with the rest of your life? The very question suggests a kind of linear trajectory, a steadily decreasing timeline. Is this how a child feels it? Would a child even understand that question? Of course, time happens and things end. But I think a young child only senses this vaguely and feels the whole thing as a as a kind of continuum. I remember watching my child when he was very little and observing the randomness of his play, the way he would passionately engage with one thing and then suddenly lose interest and move on to the next, the flow of his imagination, the way one thing became another. At Play there's a cow deep in the lavender. The remote is in a shoe. And who put the digger in the knicker drawer? The farmer in the loo? Some creatures been and rearranged our small plot according to some inscrutable law of its own. The path is strewn with raisins and bricks. There's a bear on his back in the oven. A one-eyed duck sits for days on hard times. And a sailor's face down in the mud. See how each scene is made to come about with the questionable air of things stopped rather than ended for this little maker grows cold to what is done with, moves on without so much as a, all to the good you weaker creator of havoc, wise to not mind meaning, for now, for this You bundle of nerves and decision Is your first grasp of things That hole you dug for the broken man
2: Such a great poem Things stopped rather than ended Wise to not mind meaning The wisdom of the child observed by the adult In this next poem, the child observes the adults dealing with endings in a political context you'll probably recognise. We were well washed, wrapped in towels and dried off by the fire. We put on our clean pyjamas, learned our catechism for Sunday school. Questions such as, of what was Adam made? Of the dust of the ground. One Saturday night, Mammy was washing my hair in the kitchen sink when a bomb went off. I banged the back of my head on the mixer tap and she hurried out of the house. There was a feeling in my chest like a balloon inflating. I stood at our front door watching people gather in the street. Aye, it's close that one, somebody said. And the man with the radio that could intercept the police frequency said, It's Abercorn Road. Mammy was on her way to 33, where her mammy lived. She must have hurried down Miller Street, up Ewing Street, into Mooring Avenue, not knowing what she was going to. She must have seen that the garage, Davy Andrews' garage behind Granny's house, had been blown sky high while Granny was home watching TV. She must have seen the back windows blown in, the big window of the high-ceiling kitchen, the small square scullery window, the frosted bathroom window, the bedroom windows of the tall, angular house. Glass must have flown everywhere everywhere. And where Granny was when it flew in, I never knew. Granny was angry about the strangers traipsing through her home. Though, as Mummy explained, they were only helping to sweep up the glass and put up the plastic sheeting before night fell. But Granny felt invaded, livid at the damage, its cause. When she had kept 33 clean as a new pin all her life, washed her front step every week, made her brasses gleam, She was taken to my auntie's on the East Bank and did not return. There was no time to waste. The big house was emptied, her treasures dumped or stored. And years later, my mother told me how she and my auntie broke ruby glass into a bin so that nothing was left behind when the house was sold at a knockdown price to people who would be safe living in that street.
1: You may remember that about an hour ago we began with my poem Endings, which ends, every ending is a new beginning. So we thought we'd end with a poem whose form embodies this idea. Every other line of this poem operates as both a beginning and an ending ending. If you want to see how that's done, have a look at the poem on the page. It's on the back of your handout that had the four poems on, um, and for those of you who've joined us on Zoom, uh, it should be on the screen. The poem is by Greta. It's from her forthcoming Blood Axe book, Fool, and it's called Lie in a Field on Your Back.
3: Lie in a field on your back and look
1: before you leap into your mind.
3: mind you don't say a single thing
1: more for, for now. For now there is nothing and all is behind, behind you. Behind you is a black
3: dog sitting. Sitting still is the body's way of saying patience. Patience is a
2: game you play when you want to feel dead, dead or
3: alive.
2: Both are hard. Because of the nights. nights. are
4: worse when you have to lie there and count,
1: count on the fingers of one hand. hand over your heart for it is your one earthly belonging. Belonging is never felt like an easy thing to do. Do unto others especially the ones you don't know, know.
3: thyself to be an unfathomable construct, construct a life then stand back and watch it
2: fall. and
1: then rise like a miracle. Look. Look. It is a miracle. Look. Look
2: before you
3: leap into what it means. Mm. means to an end is what this is all about.
2: about thinking.
1: thinking we are never completely wrong. Wrong one minute right the, the next. next
3: time you'll get to see how things are. Are you sure there is only one
2: way? Way over
1: your head is the sky so lie. Lie
3: until you find the truth in the lie. Lie in a field on your back, back to what you think this is and look, look while you can you fool, fool yourself you understand, understand.